Let's turn to the book of Revelation, chapter five, very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter five. I'm gonna read uh, the first 10 verses of that chapter for us. If you're gonna use the, the blue Bible in front of you, it's on page 1030. Page 1030, Revelation chapter five. I'm going to read what you've heard sung from so many different angles this morning, but this is where all of these songs were coming from. This passage, Revelation chapter five, starting in verse one. Here's what the Lord says to us through John in the book of Revelation. Chapter five, verse one. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. I am at a stage in my life where I enjoy watching American Idol. I don't know if this is a safe place to say that or not. Maybe, maybe not. Most people were in that stage in the early 2000s. Here I am, 2024. A little bit of a late bloomer on that show. But one of the things I like about the show is the experience of seeing, come, seeing someone come up in front of the judges who you would not know they were a great singer. If you just walked by them in the store or, or passed by them on the street, you wouldn't look at that person and think, I bet you that person has one of the most amazing voices you've ever heard in your life. And you wouldn't think that, but they come on the show, they stand up in front of that judge, and when their voice, their singing voice comes out, it's incredible, most of them. Not everyone on the show is incredible. Most of them, it sounds, it just blows everyone away. Judges or professional musicians and artists themselves, they're standing up, standing ovation. And and, and I think it, it just goes to show like a lot of times with people, there's more than meets the eye with people. Just what you see and assume about a person when you look at them is not often the whole picture of who that person is. Not just with singing, but even stories and experiences. Maybe you've had this experience at church. I I have. As I've gotten to know new people at our church and I get to hear their story, I would think, man, I had no clue that was your whole background or that you've gone through all of that or you came from that. There's more than meets the eye with people. 
They're hidden aspects of people, but not just people. Life in general, there's more than meets the eye. There are truths and realities that affect our daily lives that we don't see and that you and I don't often pay attention to. I'm, I'm not trying to sound like super philosophical or eerie by saying that. I'm just trying to communicate that what we see in front of us with our own two eyes is not all that there is. There's more than meets the eye. Every song that we've sang this morning has reminded us of that. That there's a whole reality in heaven that has existed for all of eternity, past and will exist for all eternity into the future that's going on right now. Right now, as you and I are sitting in this room, there are heavenly beings flying around the throne of God proclaiming holy, holy, holy. That's happening right now. And as we've been working through this whole series on prayer, it's been meant to to show us this, to remind us of this, that there's more than meets the eye. That what we see is not all that there is. And we we started, we've been working through this since the beginning of the year, really. We're coming to the end of it today. We'll start a series on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters five, six, and seven next week. But as we come to the end today, let's just try to see the bookends of where we've been. We started this series back in January in Genesis chapter four, where in verse 25, 26 area, it says, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And so we said, we've been saying over and over that prayer, our prayers are our replies to God's promises. We are crying out to God to come through on his promises. That's what prayer is, asking the Lord to fulfill his promises. And all throughout, we've seen that. Old Testament story after Old Testament story after Old Testament story to then the New Testament. And then last week, uh, Rick walked us through the book of Acts to show us the same thing there. And we asked the Lord to fulfill his promises knowing one day he will completely, fully, and eternally fulfill his promises. So we come to today, we started back with the beginning of prayer. Today we come to the end of prayer. In Genesis, in Revelation chapter five, and we'll look at a couple different places in the book of Revelation, but in all of the different places that we're gonna look, the key point is this, that I think the book of Revelation is calling us to let eternal life shape your prayer life. Let eternal life shape your prayer life. And we're gonna unpack that in, in two different parts and jumping to a few different spots throughout the book. So the two different parts that we're gonna see is this. We're gonna see when our prayers meet God's plans and then when our prayers meet God's glory. Two parts, but a few different passages. So let's, let's look at the first one. When our prayers meet God's plans. And we'll start here in Revelation chapter five that I just read. It's interesting when you look at the book of Revelation because the concept of prayer is not something you see a lot in the book. So when it comes up, I think it's something that we should pay attention to. And the first key spot is in this chapter, in chapter five. Now, I am not going to be able to, because of time and then my own just inability to fully understand everything that's here, I will not be able to explain, explain all the aspects of these verses. There's gonna be things that we read or that we see and you're gonna think, what is that? He didn't explain what that is. Uh, it's, I'm not going to. We're looking at this specifically today from the angle of prayer but I want you to know that this is, yes, a fascinating book that sparks a ton of questions. But I also want you to know, you don't have to be a theology professor to understand this book. It was written to everyday Christians back then. 
and it's meant to be understood by everyday Christians. Now, is there a lot of work we have to do to understand what's going on here? Yes. And just as an aside, if you want to understand Revelation better, the best thing you can do is read the Old Testament. You may think, well, I read the Old Testament. I don't understand that either. Well, that's for another time, another series, another study. But everything going on in, the Reve in Revelation is flowing out of what the Lord has said and given to us in the Old Testament. But even if we can't fully explain or understand every detail, we can still get the big picture here today. And that, that's our goal. So let's look at chapter five, verse one, and kind of walk through some different parts here. Verse one, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So you have God the Father seated on his throne in heaven and he's holding this rolled up scroll. This is a vision, an image that the Lord is giving to John. And, and he's on this rolled up scroll has these seven wax seals that seal it, keep it shut. You, you've seen this in old letters or old envelopes. Some of you might have the tools to even do that today. It's a super cool thing. But that's sealed with these seven wax seals across the opening. And on this scroll are written God's plans to bring about the final phase of his plans for the world. God's plans for the future. What God is going to do to bring all things full circle according to his plan and according to his promises. But the only one who can open the scroll is the one who's worthy to carry out the plans. So that's why you see this in verse two. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? In verse three, no one, listen to this, no one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. So I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. John sees this angel proclaim, who's worthy to open this? Meaning, who's worthy to be the one that carries out the plans of God for the future of his people and his kingdom? And you just hear this refrain over and over, nobody. Nobody in heaven, nobody on earth, nobody under the earth, no one is worthy to open the scroll. And you may think, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, the big deal is, if no one can open the seals and then open the scroll, God's promises can't come true. That's what's at stake here in, in this vision, in this picture. God's plans won't be completed if the scroll doesn't open. But crisis averted here because of what the elder says to John in verse five. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. You see these phrases there in verse five, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Again, like I said at the beginning of best way to understand Revelation is to read the Old Testament. These are Old Testament phrases. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, saying this is the one who is the promised king of God. He has come. And we know from our standpoint, looking back, he's talking about Jesus Christ. He's the one that God promised to send. He's the one that came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose again so that he is ruling and reigning in heaven right now. But this king didn't conquer through some kind of military campaign. This king conquered through self-sacrifice. That's why it says in verse six, 
And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So you think about this, this this elder proclaims to John, you don't need to cry, John, because there is someone who can open the scroll. It's the line of the tribe of Judah. It's the root of David, this kingly, powerful, reigning language. And then John's looking for him and he looks and he sees a lamb standing as though he had been slain. He's expecting this picture of such power and, and majesty, but he sees a slain, sacrificed lamb. Well, he conquered through his death. He conquered through his death on the cross, so therefore he can open the scroll, a.k.a. he's the one that can carry out God's plan. He's the one that can bring all of God's promises full circle. And here's what happens next where it begins to connect to prayer. Here's how we're getting there. Verse seven. And he, Jesus, the lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Now it's in the hands of Jesus. He's going to carry out God's plans. And pay close attention here in verse eight. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb Notice what they're holding, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They were holding a harp, which I know that's the stereotypical cartoon picture of heaven, everyone sitting on cloud, clouds playing harps. I do not think that's what heaven's gonna be like. It'll be way better than that, way better than that. But notice they're also holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, the saints means all, all believers, all Christians, all those made holy by putting their faith in Jesus Christ. We, if you trust in Christ, you are a saint. All the prayers of the saints, they're laying down before the lamb, before Jesus, as he holds the scroll of God's plans for the future. Now, I don't think we're meant to see all this. This is, this is the exact there's an actual bowl with all these things. I think it's a symbol or picture, this golden bowl full of incense of our prayers being the pleasing aroma before God. Incense. Our prayers being the pleasing aroma before the Lord. It pleases the Lord. It pleases him when we cry out to him to come through on his promises. It pleases him when we ask him to do the things he's promised to do. And this isn't the only place you see this, you actually see this in, in Psalm 40, 141, verse two. David pray, prays, let my prayer be counted as incense before you. Why would, why would David pray that? He's praying, Lord, let my prayer rise before you and may it please you, may it honor you. So here, what you're seeing in chapter five, verse eight, is this crossroads of God's future plans and our prayers. It's not clear yet, but in the same scene, we see God's ultimate plan for the world. We also see a mention of our prayers. This is incredible. In the same heavenly scene that we see God's plans for the world unfolding, our prayers are there too. And it becomes a little bit clear as we move to Revelation chapter eight. So just flip over a page or two to chapter eight with me. Remember, there were seven seals on the scroll. Each seal is, is opened and the scroll is progressively open, meaning God's plan is unfolding. 
and happening. And now in chapter eight, you see the seventh and final seal opened on the scroll. And what happens is really interesting for us in terms of how we think about prayer today. Revelation chapter eight, let's look at verse one. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. This did not happen with any of the other seals. They opened the seventh seal and there's silence in heaven for about half an hour. Why? There were groups upon groups upon groups of people singing and praising and worshiping the Lord. And then back in chapter six, we didn't look at this. You have those who've been martyred for their faith crying out to the Lord of when is he gonna bring his justice to the world. But then when the seventh seal is open, all of that is quiet, completely quiet. Well, I think part of it is the awe and anticipation of what the Lord is about to do. Because he's about to bring about his salvation and his judgment on the earth. So there's this, almost this <gasps> anticipation of what he's gonna do. But I also think there's a pause, I think, to highlight a little bit the importance of our prayers in this scene. Because we begin to see the importance of our prayers in the grand picture of what God is doing. Because before the scroll is opened, we are seeing that the unfolding plan of God will happen through our prayers. Author A.W. Pink said it like this. Here is the design of prayer. Not that God's will may be altered, but that it may be accomplished in his own good time and way. This is the role in place of our prayers. They don't change God's will, but they, God works through them to bring about God's, his, his will in his own good time and in his own way. And here, here's where that comes about in verse three. Chapter eight, verse three. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Verse four, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. So you see it repeated twice. The prayers of, all the prayers of the saints, the prayers of the saints in verses three and four. What, what are these prayers? They are the kind of prayers we have seen from Genesis to Revelation. Asking God to fulfill his promises. These are the prayers of hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Why does this matter? Well, look the response of the Lord in verse five. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. God's plan of judgment and salvation begins in the world but it happens as a result of prayer. It's all in the same picture. Verse three, an angel comes and he's given much, much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints. And then in verse four, the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before the Lord and then the angel begins to carry out the plans of God. What I want you to see, there may be other things that you have questions about or are confusing in here and I totally understand, but I want us to see this that on the center stage of the universe in this moment, you see God himself, you see heavenly beings, and our prayers in there too. That's amazing. Not makes us amazing, 
but in that the Lord is working through our prayers. Our prayers are, are, the, our prayers are the instrument God uses to usher in the fulfillment of his promises. One author said it like this, what we have in these verses is an explanation of what has happened to the millions upon millions of prayers over the last 2,000 years as the saints have cried out again and again, your kingdom come, your kingdom come. And here's the point he's making. Not one of these prayers has been ignored. Not one of these prayers has been lost. Not one of these prayers has been forgotten. They have all been gathering on the altar before the throne of God. Let eternal life shape your prayer life. Let eternal life and the truth of it breathe life into your prayer life. There is great encouragement for us here because it may look like, and it often does, that our prayers just go unanswered. But there's more than meets the eye. Scenes like this here in Revelation 5 and 8 assure us that God hears our prayers, that our prayers will fully and finally be answered at just the right time. Prayer is never pointless. It is not pointless for us as the people of God to repeatedly pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because our prayers are part of God's plan for all he is doing in the world right now and all he will ultimately do in the world. Our prayers play a part in that. And the end of Revelation points us forward to this as well. So that's, that's the second half of what we're gonna see. Not just when our prayers meet God's plans, but also when our prayers meet God's glory. When our prayers meet God's glory. What I'm getting at here is that because our prayers are active in bringing about the purposes of God, that means there's a time coming when prayer will no longer be necessary. You ever thought about that? There's a time coming when prayer won't be needed anymore. When we won't need to cry out to God to fulfill his promises because they'll all be fulfilled. And as the book of Revelation comes to a close, God gives us both a prayer and a picture of a future day when all our prayers will be answered. So I wanna show you a couple places at the end of the book. Let's go to the very last chapter, chapter 22. We're gonna go to the end and then come back, but, but let's go to chapter 22 first. Chapter 22, verse 20. Just looking at one verse from chapter 22, verse 20, the second to last verse of the book, the second to last verse of the Bible. Here's what it says. You're gonna see a promise and then a prayer in response to the promise, like we've seen so many times, crying out to God to fulfill his promises. Chapter 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things, all the things that have been written and promised in Revelation, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. There's the promise. Amen. Here's the prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. John's response is, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That prayer in verse 20, come, Lord Jesus, that's the prayer to end all prayers. 
That is, and he's responding to a promise. Jesus says, I am coming soon, and he responds by praying, come, Lord Jesus. The final words of the Bible here summarize all we've seen on this journey from Genesis to Revelation. That through this story of prayer, all the prayers could be summarized into this one phrase, come, Lord Jesus. That's the heart of every prayer we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Every prayer we pray right now is it in some way an expression of that prayer. When you're asking the Lord to heal you or a friend or family member that is dealing with a sickness or disease or chronic illness, when you ask the Lord to heal them, you're, you're praying, come, Lord Jesus, and bring an end to all sickness. When you pray and ask the Lord to fix some relationship or some conflict or some rift in a relationship, you are praying, come, Lord Jesus, when he ends all conflict and strife. When you and I pray, Lord, save this person, show them their need for Jesus and lead them to him, we're praying, come, Lord Jesus. And what's really beautiful about the book of Revelation is that it shows us just how many of our prayers are gonna be answered on that day when he does come, when he does return. Look with me at chapter 21. This will be the last place we look this morning. Just one, one page back, chapter 21. You remember in chapters five and eight and that whole area, we were seeing how God's plan was going to unfold. Here at the end of the book of Revelation, you see the effect of that. The effect of that for the people of God, of God's plan unfolding in the world. I just wanna read a small portion of it. Revelation uh, 21, verse one. Here's what John sees. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. When Jesus stands with the scroll in his hand as the only one worthy to unfold the plan of God and accomplish, his, accomplish God's purposes in the world, this is what he's gonna do. This is what he's gonna bring about ultimately and finally for God's people. Let's just highlight a couple things here. Look with me in verse four. This is how all of our prayers are gonna finally be answered. Verse four, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Being a Christian doesn't mean you never grieve in this life. It's never a guarantee. Sometimes it may bring more grief for you following Christ in this world. Being a Christian does not mean you will never grieve. We experience sorrow, we face trials. Some of you are in difficult situations right now. But this is a promise here that when Jesus returns, there will be no reason left to cry. There will be nothing to be sad about anymore. 
there will be nothing to mourn over anymore. Look at the next part of verse four. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and then, oh, how good this promise is. And death shall be no more. Jesus, the one who conquered, the only one who could hold the scroll, he defeated death through his own death. And one day, death is going to fully and finally die. And so as we pray, as we experience loss, as we experience hardship, we pray, let an eternal life shape our prayer life, knowing there's a day coming when death won't even be a reality anymore. Look at the next part of verse four. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Your years long battle with chronic pain, the heartache you carry with you, the loneliness you face when you lay down in bed at night or get up in the morning, all the present hardships that you experience, all those things will one day be known as former things. Former things, meaning they used to be real, but they're not real anymore. And so we pray and long for this day, and the point of all of this is that every aspect of life that burdens us, including the part that burdens you the most, none of it will last. None of it is eternal. And Revelation 21 is helping us see there's more than meets the eye. Shows us a time when prayer is no longer gonna be necessary. Tim Chester, an author, in his book on prayer, he said this, prayer is not ultimate, but penultimate. Penultimate's not a word we use all the time, but it means second to last. Prayer is not the final thing. It's the thing before the final thing. Because it's a pointer to the day when we shall see God face to face, that we wanna let eternal life shape our prayer life. This is why throughout the book of Revelation, you see prayer over and over replaced by singing. Because all of God's promises have come true. Because pain is gone, so we don't have to pray about that anymore. Because death is gone, so we don't have to pray about that anymore. Because mourning and crying is gone, and we don't have to pray about that anymore. And it's all just celebration and worship and praise. So rather than calling on the name of the Lord to fulfill his promises, we're gonna spend eternity praising the name of the Lord because how he's done that over and over. I think it becomes obvious at the end of the Bible that prayer is coming to an end. Prayer is designed for a fallen world. We saw in Genesis chapter four, right after the fall into sin in Genesis chapter three, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Prayer is designed for a fallen world and there's a day coming when there's not gonna be a need to call on the name of the Lord because he will have met our every need and we will be face to face with him. So what do we do with this? Well, for now, we pray. We pray and we wait on that day. I'll read you a prayer that I think connects to this for us from Ephesians chapter one. You can turn there if you'd like, but I'll just read it to you. It's not a long passage. Ephesians chapter one, verse 18. I want you to hear what Paul prays for them and what we can pray for ourselves and for each other. In Ephesians chapter one, 
Paul's talking about how he doesn't, he never stops giving thanks to the Lord for these people. And he remembers them all the time in his prayers. And then he talks specifically about what he prays for them. And here's, I wanna highlight one of the things he prays for them in verse 18, Ephesians chapter one, verse 18. He says he's praying that having the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that they would know what is the hope to which God has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? He says, I pray that your eyes would be open to see the eternal hope God has called you to. He prays that your eyes would be open to see that there's more than what your eyes can see. That there's an eternity waiting for you. He says, may the eyes of our hearts be enlightened, be open, be able to see the hope to which God has called us. What are the riches of the, his glorious inheritance in the saints? You and I so easily forget our eternal hope, don't we? We so easily lose sight of it. I do. We get preoccupied with the details of our lives. Our eyes kind of drop down from the horizon and we lose sight of this glorious inheritance in the saints that's waiting for us. So Paul prays right here, God, may the eyes of our hearts be open to it. God, may you lift up their eyes to see always, every day, the glorious eternity that awaits for them in Jesus. So do we pray now in the midst of really hard situations and sometimes we don't know what to pray and it's just tears and words and we can't even get it out or figure out what to pray. Yes, we do. But we pray in the middle of that, seen even through our tears, there's a day coming when there won't be any more tears. Do we pray right now in the midst of our own sin and mess ups and brokenness and struggles? For sure. And we confess those things to the Lord. But we pray in the middle of that knowing there's a day coming when sin will be no more. Do we pray right now facing death and difficulty and trials and struggles? Yes. But we pray with our eyes on the horizon looking towards eternity because the Lord enlightens our eyes to the hope to which he has called us. That glorious inheritance in the saints that is kept in heaven for us and no one and nothing can snatch us away from it or it from us. One more thought from Tim Chester, just how this all connects to our prayer. He says this, imagine, picture this with me. Imagine you are on the threshold of eternity. You are standing on the threshold about to enter, enter into eternity. He says, imagine you are a thousand, million, billion, trillion years into eternity, if indeed eternity can be counted in years. He says, imagine that now, look at the request on your typical prayer list. How do they line up? How important do those things seem now? We should let the future promised return of Jesus shape the priorities of our prayers. It might not necessarily mean we pray about different things, but it might mean we pray about the same things in a different way, knowing and trusting what God says. The hope of eternity with Jesus shapes why we pray and what we pray for. That there's a day coming when all of our prayers will be enveloped by God's glorious presence. So let's pray in light of that day and let's keep praying until that day.
There's more than meets the eye. So we wanna let eternal life shape our prayer life. Like, let's not pray like this world is all there is. If heaven wasn't real and God's promises weren't true, would our prayers sound the same? Let's pray knowing there's more than meets the eye, knowing there's more than just this world, knowing there's more than what we can see. Rebecca McLaughlin, in, in, in her great little book about uh, women that encountered Jesus in the gospel, she says, as followers of Jesus, I love this picture, as followers of Jesus, we are peeking through a keyhole into a whole new, different world where sin and suffering will be banished forever by Jesus and his resurrection life. So day after day, week after week, year after year, we call on the name of the Lord until the day we stand face to face with Jesus in heaven and calling on the name of the Lord is replaced by praising the name of the Lord.